Market Existential by Charlton's. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to be with you today to talk about the Hong Kong Stock Exchange's new listing regime for special purpose acquisition companies, also referred to as SPACs. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange published its consultation paper seeking feedback on its proposals for Hong Kong listing regime for SPACs in September 2021. The exchange received 96 responses and published its consultation conclusions in December 2021, adopting most of the consultation paper's proposals with minor amendments. The exchange's new listing regime, allowing SPACs to list on the main board of the exchange, came into effect on the 1st of January 2022 under amendments to the exchange's listing rules, including a new Chapter 18B on SPAC listings. The exchange also issued a new guidance letter, 113.22, on special purpose acquisition companies. There are currently six SPACs that I'm aware of that have applied to list under the new Chapter 18B. A general trend of the SPACs that have applied to list in Hong Kong is that there's a focus on Asia and greater China markets. In respect of industries that SPACs are focused on, in respect of their DSPAC targets, these include technology and new economy sectors such as green energy, life sciences and advanced technology and manufacturing in Asia and China, global consumer lifestyle companies in China, healthcare and healthcare related um, areas, manufacturing and healthcare, biotech and TMT industries in Asia and car technologies and cross-border e-commerce capabilities. With regard to recent developments in Hong Kong um, for SPACs, it's been reported that there is a lack of insurance providers who are prepared to provide DNO, directors and officers insurance to directors of a SPAC. The lack of options in respect of DNO insurance providers and high prices charged by the few insurance providers who are willing to provide DNO insurance to SPAC directors may be a setback for Hong Kong's SPAC regime. It's being reported that in Hong Kong, for DNO insurance for SPAC directors, the premium can be five times more expensive than that charged for a traditional IPO. Concerns raised by insurance companies include the uncertainties of the future performance in respect of the DSPAC target and a lack of data and a limited source of information that insurers can rely on when attempting to determine potential claims. So what are SPACs. While special purpose acquisition companies are companies without any business operations that raise funds through an IPO to acquire a target company, which is known as a DSPAC target, within a specified period of time and then list the target company. The SPAC's acquisition of or merger with the DSPAC target resulting in the listing of the resulting company is defined in the listing rules as a DSPAC transaction. The SPAC's key personnel are the SPAC promoters, who are typically professional managers, usually with private equity, corporate finance, and or industry experience who establish and manage the SPAC. The SPAC promoter is ultimately the deal maker in that it's tasked with identifying a suitable DSPAC target, negotiating the terms of the DSPAC transaction, and ensuring its successful completion. The exchange was keen to introduce a SPAC listing regime in Hong Kong, to ensure its continued competitiveness and continued ability to attract listings of mainland and Southeast Asian companies that might otherwise opt to list under the SPAC regimes of other jurisdictions. US listed SPACs saw a surge in popularity in 2021, while Singapore and the UK revised or implemented their own SPAC listing regimes. 
There were 613 SPAC listings in the US in 2021, which raised a total of 145 billion US dollars, up 90% from the amount raised by SPACs in 2020. SPACs also represented over 59% of new listings in the US in 2021, up from 53% in 2020. The exchanges of the view that Hong Kong's geographical location and proximity to mainland China and Southeast Asia will give its SPAC regime a competitive advantage over other jurisdiction SPAC listing regimes. The exchange said in its consultation paper that in the last three years, 12 companies with a combined market cap as of July 2021 of approximately 26 billion Hong Kong dollars listed in the US via DSPAC transactions. Of these, 12 companies, two were headquartered in Hong Kong, eight in China and two in Singapore. However, the exchange also has concerns with regard to SPACs and while they were keen to introduce a SPAC regime, the exchange is also concerned about maintaining the quality and reputation of the Hong Kong IPO market. So in respect of SPACs, the exchange was particularly concerned about the quality and continuity of management of SPACs, the SPAC valuation and SPAC promoters. So with regard to SPAC promoters, the exchange said that they were concerned that SPAC promoters may lack the knowledge and experience required to find an acquisition target that can provide SPAC investors with a good return on their investment. The exchange also is concerned that SPAC promoters may deliberately mislead investors as to the extent of their abilities, with fraudsters attempting to fabricate, exaggerate or hide facts about their backgrounds while presenting themselves as successful professionals to entice investors to falsely misrepresent the success or accomplishment of certain SPAC promoters. So it's with these concerns in mind that the exchange said that they were seeking to strike a balance between the potential competitive advantages of listing SPACs on the exchange and mitigating what they see as the potential risks associated with SPACs. There are certain listing rules which don't apply to SPACs. Most notably, these include the financial eligibility and track record requirements for listing of Listing Rule 805, the prohibition on listing cash companies under Listing Rules 805C and 1482, the requirement for listed companies to have sufficient operations and assets to warrant their listing under listing rules 6013 and 1324, and the prohibition on a fundamental change in principal business activities for one year post-listing under listing rules 1489 and 1490. The requirement to appoint a sponsor is shortened for SPACs to at least one month rather than two months before submission of the listing application. Some respondents to the consultation paper commented that this would increase the time taken to conduct a DSPAC transaction and thereby compromise the speed of the transaction, which they argued was one of the main benefits of a SPAC. However, the exchange retained the requirement, albeit with a shorter appointment period required before submission of the A1 application, saying that the need to appoint the IPO sponsor early ensures the quality of the assets and businesses that are listed in DSPAC transactions. This is achieved by ensuring that due diligence is performed to the same extent as for traditional IPOs. With regards to an IPO sponsor's due diligence, paragraph 17 of the SFC's Conduct and Practice Note 21 of the listing rules should be complied with to the extent applicable. The exchange adopted its original proposal to require SPACs to raise minimum IPO funds of 1 billion Hong Kong dollars, which is now set out in listing rule 18B08. 
This was in spite of the proposal being opposed by almost half of the respondents to the consultation who thought that 1 billion Hong Kong dollars was excessive given that the listing rules market cap requirement was and is 500 million Hong Kong dollars for traditional IPOs. Some respondents thought that a 1 billion minimum fundraising requirement would discourage SPACs looking for smaller de-SPAC transactions in the innovative and emerging market sectors. IPO funds raised by SPACs must be held in a ring-fenced escrow account in Hong Kong operated by a trustee or custodian whose qualifications are consistent with the requirements of Chapter 4 of the SFC's Code on Unit Trusts and Mutual Funds. The exchange said in the consultation conclusions that it's deliberately targeting experienced and reputable SPAC promoters that seek good quality targets. The exchange also considers that a minimum fundraising size of 1 billion Hong Kong dollars will help ensure that the SPAC is capable of generating sufficient interest among professional investors. The minimum subscription price for SPAC shares is $10 and the minimum board lot size and subscription amount is 1 million Hong Kong dollars. The exchange considers that setting the board lot size and minimum subscription at 1 million will provide an effective safeguard against retail investors' participation prior to the listing of the merged SPAC and target company. Before the DSPAC transaction is completed, only professional investors are allowed to subscribe for and trade SPAC securities. For these purposes, professional investors include both institutional professional investors and corporate and individual professional investors under the Securities and Futures Professional Investors Rules. More than 60% of the respondents supported this proposal, with many agreeing that as SPACs are new to the Hong Kong market, retail investors are unlikely to be aware of the risks associated with SPACs and warranting the professional restriction to protect investors. So prior to the DSPAC transaction, only professional investors will be allowed to subscribe for and trade SPAC securities, while retail investors are allowed to subscribe for and trade the shares of the successor company. In order to create an open market for SPAC securities, the consultation paper proposed that SPACs must distribute SPAC shares and SPAC warrants to a minimum of 75 professional investors, of whom 30 must be institutional professional investors, and SPACs must distribute at least 75% of both SPAC shares and SPAC warrants to institutional professional investors. Over half of respondents to the consultation paper opposed these proposals. Opponents argued that the proposal was contrary to US market practice and would disadvantage SPAC listings compared to traditional listings which have no equivalent restriction. Other grounds for objection included that the proposal would create additional compliance burdens on underwriters who have to distinguish between institutional professional investors and other professional investors and could make the shareholder distribution too diverse to be attractive to high-quality long-term investors. It was also noted that there is no correlation between the number of SPAC shareholders and price volatility of SPAC securities. The exchange acknowledged in the consultation conclusions that the requirement for 30 institutional investors may not be commercially viable for SPACs and so reduced the required number of institutional professional investors to 20. So the listing rules now require a SPAC to have at least 75 professional investors of whom 20 must be institutional professional investors who hold 75% of the shares to be listed. This modifies the general listing rule requirement for 300 shareholders at listing. 
Institutional professional investors are investors within paragraphs A to I of the definition of professional investors in section one of part one of schedule one to the SFO. They don't include high net worth professional investors within the category set out in the Securities and Futures Professional Investor Rules, who are defined as non-institutional professional investors in the listing rules. Trading arrangements and the trading of SPAC units. In the consultation paper, the exchange raised concerns about the trading of SPAC units, which consist of a SPAC share and a SPAC warrant stapled together. Generally, SPAC units are offered to IPO investors and they begin trading on the listing of the SPAC and can be split into a SPAC share and a SPAC warrant at the option of the investor. The exchange was concerned that if a SPAC unit was capable of being separated into a SPAC share and a SPAC warrant immediately on listing of the SPAC, it could result in a disorderly market due to sudden changes in price. To mitigate against these perceived challenges, the exchange proposed two options. The first was only to allow for the manual trading of SPAC warrants. The second option proposed was a combination of auto-matching and manual trading. This option offered greater flexibility compared to option one and provided for both auto-matching of orders with volatility control mechanism and manual trades of SPAC securities. More than 90% of the respondents supported the proposal to allow separate trading of SPAC shares and SPAC warrants from the date of listing of the SPAC. A majority supported option two, which combines auto-matching and manual trading. The exchange adopted their proposal and SPAC shares and SPAC warrants can be listed and traded separately from the date of the SPAC's initial listing until the DSPAC transaction. To mitigate the risks of volatility in trading, the exchange will allow both manual trades and auto-matching of orders subject to the exchange's volatility control mechanism with different price deviation percentage parameters set for SPAC shares and SPAC warrants. The exchange said that it will review the volatility control mechanism triggering thresholds at an appropriate time after the launch of the SPAC regime to determine its effectiveness. As I mentioned earlier, SPAC promoters play an important role in the SPAC process and are ultimately the deal makers responsible for identifying a suitable DSPAC target, negotiating the terms of the DSPAC transaction and seeing it to its successful completion. The exchange adopted its proposals that it must be satisfied as to the character, experience and integrity of each SPAC promoter and that each SPAC promoter is capable of meeting a standard of competence commensurate with its position. SPAC promoters are persons who establish a SPAC and or beneficially own shares issued to them by the SPAC. The new guidance letter also says that in determining the suitability and or eligibility of a SPAC promoter, the exchange will conduct a suitability assessment and will take into account non-exhaustive factors and considerations relevant to SPAC promoters, including their experience and expertise and any other relevant information provided by the SPAC as set out in the guidance letter on SPACs. So the SPAC guidance letter sets out the information that SPAC promoters need to provide to the exchange for it to assess whether they have the character and experience required. It includes details of their experience as a SPAC promoter, including their role, level of involvement, the number of years that they held that role, and the names of SPACs they've previously established and or are now interested in as a SPAC promoter. SPAC promoters also have to provide information to the exchange about their SPAC experience, including information on the amount of funds raised at the SPAC's initial offering, 
the size and terms of the promoter shares, a description of the size and types of DSPAC targets sought, the terms of the DSPAC transaction, and the market cap of the successor company. The complete list of information that must be provided to the exchange is set out in paragraph 8 of the guidance letter. A further eligibility requirement is that at least one SPAC promoter at listing and throughout the period of the SPAC's listing must be a company licensed under the Securities and Futures Ordinance to conduct Type 6 and or Type 9 regulated activity and which beneficially holds at least 10% of the promoter shares issued by the SPAC. A number of respondents to the consultation paper opposed this SFC licensing requirement for varying reasons. Some respondents said that such a licensing requirement would exclude experienced and capable overseas SPAC promoters from listing SPACs in Hong Kong, and that this licensing requirement will disincentivize high-quality corporates and or individuals, private equity funds and institutions who do not hold an SFC license from becoming SPAC promoters in Hong Kong. Other respondents who opposed this SFC licensing requirement commented that other safeguards proposed in the SPAC regime, including, for example, the suitability assessment of SPAC promoters and the requirement to appoint an IPO sponsor to conduct due diligence on the DSPAC target, were adequate safeguards to ensure high-quality DSPAC targets would be sought. In addition, some respondents said that there was no such licensing requirement in the US, the UK or Singapore. Despite these concerns, in respect to the licensing requirement, the exchange said that SPACs differentiate themselves primarily based on the experience and reputation of the SPAC promoter, which potential investors rely on when they decide whether to invest in a SPAC or not. The exchange concluded that, in their opinion, the SFC's licensing requirement is an appropriate safeguard to ensure that SPAC promoters are competent and to hold them accountable for any potential breach. However, the exchange has acknowledged in the consultation conclusions that there may be high-quality SPAC promoters with substantial SPAC experience holding a similar accreditation to an SFC license in jurisdictions outside of Hong Kong. According to New Guidance Letter 11322, the exchange will consider waiving the SFC licensing requirement on a case-by-case basis if a SPAC promoter has an overseas accreditation issued by a regulatory authority that the exchange considers equivalent to an SFC Type 6 or Type 9 license. The exchange will not consider the SFC licensing requirement to be met by an individual who is licensed to carry on Type 6 or Type 9 activity. The exchange requires a SPAC promoter to be a licensed corporation to meet the requirement. The guidance letter also provides that a SPAC promoter will be deemed to have met the SFC licensing requirement if the SPAC promoter's controlling shareholder is licensed for regulated type 6 or type 9 activity subject to two conditions. The first is that the SPAC must demonstrate to the exchange that it has in place sufficient safeguards and or undertakings to ensure the controlling shareholder's oversight of the SPAC promoter's responsibilities. And the second condition is that the controlling shareholder must give an undertaking to the exchange that it will ensure that the SPAC promoter complies with applicable listing rules. Listing Rule 18B32 specifies requirements for where a material change occurs in either a SPAC promoter who alone or together with its close associates controls or is entitled to control 50% or more of the issued promoter shares, or if none, the largest single SPAC promoter or a material change in the SPAC promoter which 
the SPAC promoter is holding the required type 6 or type 9 license or any material change in the eligibility or suitability of any of these SPAC promoters. In these circumstances, the material change must be approved by a special resolution of the SPAC shareholders at a general meeting within one month of the date of material change. SPAC promoters and their close associates are required to abstain from voting on the resolution. Before the vote on the material change, the SPAC shareholders, other than the SPAC promoters, must be allowed to redeem their shares. If the material change is not approved within one month, the SPAC is required to return all the funds raised at its initial offering to the shareholders, liquidate the SPAC and delist. A material change includes, amongst other things, the departure or addition of a SPAC promoter and a change in control of a SPAC promoter. A change in the eligibility or suitability of a SPAC promoter will include the SFC's revocation or suspension of a SPAC promoter's license and its breach of any laws or regulations having a bearing on its integrity and or competence. The consultation paper proposed that a majority of SPAC directors should be officers, as defined in the SFO, of the SPAC promoters and represent the SPAC promoters who nominate them. However, this proposal was not adopted because, as the Exchange acknowledged, it could have the unintended consequence of preventing a SPAC from appointing a majority of INEDs to its board. Listing Rule 18b13 requires instead that a SPAC board must include at least two Type 6 or Type 9 SFC licensed persons, of whom at least one must be a licensed person of an SPAC promoter. There is no restriction on the role served by these directors on the board of the SPAC. The exchange has retained the requirement that directors nominated by a SPAC promoter for appointment to the SPAC board must be officers as defined by the SFO of the SPAC promoter that nominated him or her. Chapter 3 of the listing rules applies to SPACs and requires that INEDs comprise at least one third of their boards subject to a minimum of three INEDs. Funds held in escrow. So the exchange proposed that it would require 100% of the gross proceeds from a SPAC IPO, excluding the funds raised from the issue of promoter shares and promoter warrants, to be held in a ring fence trust account in Hong Kong. The exchange made two important changes to this requirement. First, a SPAC must hold 100% of its gross proceeds from the initial offering in a ring fenced escrow account domiciled in Hong Kong. The change was that the original proposal required a trust rather than an escrow account in Hong Kong. The second change was the exchange's clarification that SPACs are free to use a trustee or a custodian to hold the funds raised from the initial offering, provided that if a trustee is appointed, that the trustee holds the funds in trust and fulfills its duties as imposed by the general law of trusts, and that it discharges its obligations and duties in a manner that's consistent with Chapter 4 of the Code on Unit Trusts, Alternatively, if a custodian is appointed, the custodian must hold the funds pursuant to a custodian agreement, which reflects the custodian's responsibilities under Chapter 4 of the Code on Unit Trusts. The exchange also said that an escrow agent may be used, provided that the escrow agent meets either the obligations of a trustee or a custodian. Importantly, the custodian or trustee doesn't need to be a financial institution licensed by or approved by the HKMA. The funds held in escrow may only be released in limited circumstances, which are 
for the purpose of a distribution made to SPAC shareholders in the event of a redemption or liquidation of the SPAC or for the purpose of completing a DSPAC transaction. New Listing Rule 18B19 states that the funds held in the escrow account must be held in the form of cash or cash equivalents. The note to this new listing rules explains that it will be the responsibility of the SPAC to ensure that the funds that are held in escrow are held in a form that will allow the SPAC to meet the requirement of full redemption to shareholders when required. SPACs issue promoter shares to the SPAC promoters at nominal consideration to incentivize the SPAC promoters to successfully complete a DSPAC transaction. The exchange proposed that only SPAC promoters would be permitted to beneficially hold promoter shares and promoter warrants. It also proposed that the promoter shares and promoter warrants would not be eligible for listing and that the SPAC would be required not to certify the transfer of legal ownership of any promoter shares or promoter warrants. The exchange adopted all its proposals for promoter shares with minor amendments. The minor amendment being that the exchange will, in exceptional circumstances, waive the restriction on the transfer of the SPAC promoter shares to permit a transfer of promoter shares or promoter warrants between SPAC promoters of the same SPAC. Such a transfer between SPAC promoters of the same SPAC will be subject to the approval by a resolution of the shareholders at a general meeting. SPAC promoters and their close associates will not be allowed to vote on the resolution. The number of promoter shares issued to SPAC promoters must not represent more than 20% of the total number of the SPAC's issued shares at listing. Following completion of the DSPAC transaction, SPACs are permitted to issue additional promoter shares capped at 10% of the total number of shares in issue at the SPAC's listing. The exchange may also allow SPACs to ad issue additional rights to SPAC promoters, entitling them to receive additional ordinary shares of the successor company following completion of the DSPAC transaction as earnout rights. This is subject first to a condition that the total number of ordinary shares of the successor company to be issued under the earnout rights and all promoter shares must not exceed 30% of the number of the SPAC's issued shares at listing. The second condition on the issue of earnout rights is that they must only be convertible into earnout shares on the satisfaction of objective performance targets. If the performance targets are determined by changes in the price of the successor company's shares, the targets must be at least 20% higher than the issue price of the SPAC shares at listing and satisfied by reference to the volume weighted average price of the successor company's shares calculated on the basis of the exchange's daily quotation sheets over a period of at least 20 trading days within a 30 consecutive trading day period commencing at least six months after the successor company's listing. New listing rule 18b32 prohibits promoter warrants that entitle the holder upon exercise to more than one share in the successor company. Promoter warrants cannot be issued at a price that is less than 10% of the issue price of SPAC shares at listing and cannot contain more favourable terms than those carried on by other warrants issued by the SPAC. Each warrant that is issued must have an exercise price that represents at least a 15% premium to the issue price of the SPAC shares that are issued at the time of listing and must only be exercisable after completion of the DSPAC transaction. SPAC warrants must expire at least one year after and not more than five years after. 
the completion of the DSPAC transaction and must not be convertible into further rights to subscribe for securities expiring less than one year or five years thereafter. SPAC promoters, their directors and employees, SPAC employees and their close associates are prohibited from dealing in the SPAC's listed securities before the completion of the DSPAC transaction. The exchange treats a DSPAC transaction in the same way as a reverse takeover, that is, as a deemed new listing. So, Listing Rule 18b35 requires the successor company to meet all the listing requirements for new listings under Chapters 8 and 9 of the Listing Rules. These include the financial eligibility tests and minimum market cap requirement, the requirement to appoint a sponsor, the sponsor due diligence requirements and the documentary requirements. More than 65% of the consultation respondents supported the exchange's proposal to apply the new listing requirements to the DSPAC transaction to address the perceived risk that a SPAC may be used to circumvent the quantitative and qualitative criteria for a new listing on the exchange. Those who opposed the proposal to treat DSPAC transactions as new listings commented that in the US, for example, the SPAC regime is used as an avenue for listing by early-stage companies from emerging and innovative sectors to raise capital. They proposed that the new SPAC regime should adopt a different set of eligibility requirements so that companies who cannot meet the general IPO listing requirements can list via the SPAC regime. Some respondents also said that if a company is able to meet all the new listing requirements, it may simply choose to list via the traditional IPO route. This, it was argued, is because if a DSPAC transaction is subject to all the new listing rules, the lead time to listing and the documents required will be similar to those for a traditional IPO. Another objection was that requiring SPACs to appoint a sponsor will increase the lead time for completing the DSPAC transaction, removing one of the main benefits of a SPAC. Other respondents said that management and continuity requirements would limit the forms and structures that can be adopted in completing a DSPAC transaction, and that a DSPAC transaction often results in a change of ownership and or management of the DSPAC target. So in response to some of these concerns, the exchange said that requiring DSPAC transactions to meet the initial listing requirements is consistent with the practice in other exchanges, such as those in the US, UK and Singapore. The exchange also said that these requirements ensure that there's a level playing field between issuers who choose to list via a traditional IPO and those that choose to list via a DSPAC transaction. In the consultation conclusions, the exchange said that the exchange rules of other jurisdictions, in particular the US, offer listing applicants a number of different categories of listing eligibility criteria to choose from and that some of those categories do cater for early stage companies from emerging to innovative sectors, which is not always the case in Hong Kong. However, these listing criteria in the various categories apply equally to DSPAC transactions and traditional IPOs. The exchange's view is that the question whether the, the, they should offer similar eligibility requirements, i.e. categories that cater for early stage companies, should be considered separately from the mechanism by which a listing is achieved. So despite the concerns raised, the exchange concluded that the successor company, that is, the company resulting from the DSPAC transaction, must meet all the requirements for a new listing under the listing rules, including the listing eligibility requirements of Chapter 8 and the listing application procedures under Chapter 9, 
the requirements for the issue of a listing document and the requirement to appoint at least one sponsor who must be appointed at least two months before the successor company's listing application submission. With regard to the listing rule requirements of continuity of management and ownership, the exchange will consider DSPAC transactions in the same way as RTOs, and they will consider granting waivers from the continuity of management and ownership requirements on a case-by-case basis in accordance with their current practice as set out in the guidance letter on the application of the reverse takeover rules. To ensure that the DSPAC targets businesses um, have sufficient substance to justify a listing on the exchange, the exchange proposed to require that the DSPAC target would have a fair market value of at least 80% of the funds raised by the SPAC at its initial offering prior to any redemptions. Despite some respondents suggesting that a market cap of 500 million should be adopted as opposed to 1 billion, the exchange maintained that the market cap of 1 billion should be imposed to ensure the size and quality of the successor company. I mentioned the market cap requirements again in the context of a DSPAC target because requiring a SPAC to have a market cap of 1 billion and requiring that the DSPAC target have a fair market value of at least 80% of the SPAC's IPO funds raised effectively means that a DSPAC target must have a fair market value of at least 800 million Hong Kong dollars. The exchange concluded that a DSPAC target must have a fair market value at least 80% of the SPAC's IPO funds raised. As to the determination of fair market value, the exchange expects the SPAC's board of directors to confirm satisfaction of this requirement, taking into account the negotiated DSPAC value. According to the SPAC guidance letter, the exchange will assess the board's confirmation, taking into account the basis of the opinion, the negotiated value of the DSPAC target agreed by the parties, the sponsor's opinion, the amount committed by an involvement of and validation by independent third-party investors, and the valuation of comparable companies. In addition to the requirements as to the fair market value of the DSPAC target, the exchange asked the market for their views on whether the SPAC should be required to use a certain portion of its net proceeds raised as consideration for a DSPAC transaction, and if so, whether that threshold should be 80% of the net funds raised. The exchange said that the purpose of this proposal was to assist preventing the listing of successor companies which are cash shells. The exchange received mixed views from respondents, with 53% supporting the proposal and 47% opposing it. The exchange decided not to impose a requirement that a SPAC must use a certain proportion of the net funds raised at its initial offering as consideration for a DSPAC transaction. Reasons advanced by the respondents who did not support this proposal included that such a requirement would disadvantage listing via a DSPAC transaction versus listing via a traditional IPO, as in a traditional IPO, the listed company can retain 100% of the proceeds raised. Other respondents said that requiring a certain threshold of funds to be used would reduce deal structure flexibility and deter some high-quality DSPAC targets that don't wish to sell their interest for cash from entering into DSPAC transactions. Another respondent highlighted that a DSPAC transaction would normally use shares in the successor company as consideration so that the successor company can retain the funds raised by the SPAC for future development. In view of the market feedback received, the exchange concluded not to impose a requirement that would require a SPAC 
to use a certain portion of its net funds raised as consideration for a DSPAC target. The exchange also proposed that a certain percentage of the funds raised by a SPAC would have to come from independent third-party professional investors. Listing rules 18b40 and 41 require a SPAC to obtain funds from independent third-party professional investors to complete a DSPAC transaction. The amount required depends on the negotiated value of the DSPAC target and is expressed as a percentage. The minimum investment by independent third-party professional investors as a percentage of the negotiated value of the DSPAC target is set out in the table on the slide. So for a DSPAC target with a negotiated value of less than $2 billion, the minimum investment required by independent professionals is 25%, whereas for a DSPAC target with a negotiated value above $7 billion Hong Kong dollars, the investment required of the independent professionals will be 7.5% of that amount. The exchange may accept a lower percentage than 7.5% for DSPAC targets with a negotiated value of over 10 billion Hong Kong dollars. Listing rule 18B42 requires that the independent third-party investment must include significant investment from independent sophisticated investors as defined in guidance published on the exchange's website. According to the SPAC guidance letter, the exchange will consider the significant investment by sophisticated investment requirement to be met if at least 50% of the value of the required independent third-party investment comes from at least three investors, which are each an asset management company with assets under management of at least 8 billion Hong Kong dollars or a fund with a fund size of at least 8 billion Hong Kong dollars. In determining the independence of a professional investor in a DSPAC transaction, the exchange will apply the criteria applied to independent financial advisors. In the consultation paper, the exchange sought feedback on a dilution cap on the conversion of promoter shares and the exercise of warrants issued by a SPAC. The exchange's proposals in respect of dilution were largely supported by the respondents with the general view among those who supported this proposal that they believed that a dilution cap would assist with limiting the misalignment of interests between SPAC promoters and independent shareholders, as well as mitigate against the potential dilutive impact to non-redeeming SPAC shareholders. The listing rules prohibit a SPAC from issuing promoter shares representing more than 20% of the total number of shares that the SPAC had in issue at listing. Whether promoter shares are convertible into ordinary shares of the successor company, they must only be convertible at or after the completion of the DSPAC transaction on a one-for-one -one basis. The exchange initially proposed that a SPAC would be prohibited from issuing warrants that, if exercised immediately, would result in the issue of a number of shares exceeding 30% of the number of shares in issue at the time of issue of the warrants. It also proposed prohibiting the issue of promoter warrants that, on exercise, would result in the issue of a number of shares exceeding 10% of the number of shares in issue at the time the warrants were issued. Following market feedback, the exchange increased the cap on warrants to 50% of the total number of shares in issue at the time the warrants were issued. The exchange also removed the proposed cap on promoter warrants. The listing rules also impose certain disclosure requirements. These include a requirement for the SPAC to include in its listing document the impact of dilution on shareholders. The listing document that's issued prior to a DSPAC transaction must contain the potential dilution effect of the DSPAC transaction 
to the number and value of the holdings of the non-redeeming shareholders. As soon as reasonably practicable, upon the listing of the successor company, the successor company must publish an announcement which sets out the dilution effect of the holdings of the non-redeeming shareholders, which take into account the actual amount of redemption. A SPAC will be required to publish a DSPAC announcement of the terms of a DSPAC transaction as soon as possible following the finalization of the terms of the DSPAC transaction, and in any event, no later than 24 months of its listing date. That's called the announcement deadline. Under new listing rule 18b70, a SPAC will have to complete a DSPAC transaction within 36 months of its listing date. SPACs will be allowed to request a six-month extension of either the announcement deadline or the transaction deadline. The extension must be approved by an ordinary resolution of the SPAC shareholders in a general meeting at which SPAC promoters and their close associates are required to abstain from voting. Prior to the general meeting to approve the extension of either the announcement deadline or the transaction deadline, shareholders must be given the opportunity to redeem all or part of their shareholdings at the price at which the shares were issued in the SPAC's IPO. A DSPAC transaction must be conditioned upon receiving approval of the SPAC shareholders in a general meeting. In respect to the voting arrangement, SPAC promoters and other shareholders with a material interest in the transaction and their close associates are required to abstain from voting. In respect of the outgoing controlling shareholder of the SPAC, the same rules that applied to an RTO will be applied to the controlling shareholder. So a controlling shareholder of the SPAC and its close associates are permitted to vote in favour of the DSPAC transaction if the controlling shareholder would cease to be a controlling shareholder as a result of the DSPAC transaction. The exchange has not imposed a voting restriction on the outgoing controlling shareholder. Where a DSPAC transaction is a connected transaction under Chapter 14A of the Exchange's Listing Rules, the SPAC will be required to comply with the requirements for connected transactions, and the SPAC will additionally need to demonstrate that minimal conflicts of interest exist in relation to the proposed transaction, support its claim that the transaction would be on arm's length basis with adequate reasons, and include an independent valuation of the transaction in the SPAC's listing document. The ability of shareholders to redeem their shares upon the happening of certain events is a key attribute of SPACs. The ability to redeem shares is also considered to be a key shareholder protection mechanism, and shareholders who elect to redeem their shares in the SPAC must receive an amount per SPAC share which is equal to the issue price of the SPAC share at the time of the initial listing of the SPAC. A SPAC will have to provide its shareholders with the opportunity to redeem all are part of their shareholdings at the price at which the shares were issued in the SPAC's IPO prior to a general meeting to approve a DSPAC transaction. A material change in the SPAC promoter or any extension to the deadlines for announcing or completing a DSPAC transaction. SPAC shares that are redeemed must be cancelled. In addition to the announcement of the voting results of the general meeting, a SPAC must also announce the amount of share redemption as soon as practicable after the meeting. In the consultation paper, it was proposed to link the redemption option to votes cast against a DSPAC transaction. This proposal was aimed, amongst other things, to help ensure that the respective shareholders' vote would serve as a check that the terms of the proposed transaction were fair and reasonable, and that the interests of the non-redeeming shareholders would not be prejudiced by votes cast by persons whose interests are not aligned with theirs. 
To this extent, to align shareholder voting and shareholder redemptions, the exchange proposed that only those shareholders who voted against one of the certain trigger events could redeem their shares in the, in the SPAC. Um, they are a material change in the SPAC promoter managing a SPAC or the eligibility and or suitability of a SPAC promoter, a DSPAC transaction, and a proposal to extend the DSPAC announcement deadline or the DSPAC transaction deadline. However, approximately 47% of respondents didn't support this proposal. In this regard, respondents raised a number of concerns. Some said that this proposal will unnecessarily result in the rejection of more DSPAC transactions as investors who want to redeem their shares will have to vote against the DSPAC transaction. Other respondents noted that this proposal to align voting and redemptions will not reliably validate the terms of the DSPAC transaction as a shareholder's decision to redeem may be motivated by numerous factors other than the fairness and reasonableness of the DSPAC transaction. Due to these and other concerns raised by the respondents, the exchange did not adopt the proposal. Therefore, SPAC shareholders are able to redeem their shares irrespective of how they vote on a DSPAC transaction. The exchange adopted its proposal in respect of the open market requirements of the successor company shares. So, on the listing of the successor company, the minimum number of shareholders required at listing will be 100. To this extent, the exchange said that it would not be feasible for a successor company to meet the requirement of having to distribute its shares to 300 shareholders on its initial listing, and that in the view of the exchange, requiring a shareholder distribution of 100 shareholders is more attainable and is also sufficient to ensure an open market in the shares of a successor company. SPAC promoters will be subject to restriction on the disposal of their holdings in the successor company. These lockup restrictions apply to SPAC promoters, promoters' shares and promoter warrants and any securities resulting from the conversion or exercise of promoters' shares, promoter warrants and earnout rights for 12 months from the date of completion of the DSPAC transaction. The controlling shareholders of a successor company will also be subject to the lockup provisions of Listing Rule 1007 with respect to disposals of their shareholdings in the successor company following its listing. This means that controlling shareholders of a successor company will be restricted from disposing of their shares in the successor company for a period of six months from the date of listing of the successor company and will be restricted from disposing of their shares in the successor company in the second six-month period after listing. If that disposal will result in the controlling shareholder ceasing to be a controlling shareholder. The Takeovers Code applies to takeovers, mergers and share buybacks affecting public companies in Hong Kong and companies with a primary listing of their equity securities. The Takeovers Code will apply prior to completion of the DSPAC transaction and to the DSPAC transaction. The exchange proposed that the Takeovers Code apply to SPACs during the period from when the SPAC is listed until completion of the DSPAC transaction. This proposal received overwhelming support and was adopted by the exchange. In respect of the application of the takeovers code to the DSPAC transaction, the exchange had proposed that where a DSPAC transaction results in the owner of the DSPAC target obtaining 30% or more of the voting rights, the application of Rule 26.1 of the takeovers code would normally be waived. In these circumstances, the owner of the DSPAC target would need to make a formal application to the SFC for the waiver. The exchange adopted the proposals and the takeovers code applies to the DSPAC transaction. 
To this extent, the exchange explained that where a waiver has been granted, no general offer is expected by the owner of the DSPAC target and no offer period will commence. As I mentioned, the DSPAC announcement must be made within 24 months of the date of listing, while the DSPAC transaction must be completed within 36 months of the date of listing. SPACs are able to apply to the exchange for a six-month extension of either the announcement deadline or the DSPAC transaction deadline. Trading of a SPAC securities will be immediately suspended if either the announcement deadline or the transaction deadline extended or otherwise is not met or if a SPAC fails to obtain approval by a special resolution of its shareholders at a general meeting for a material change in a SPAC promoter within one month of the change. The exchange clarified in Listing Rule 18B73 that it does not have a discretion to impose a suspension based on the individual circumstances of a case. Following suspension, the SPAC will have one month to return the IPO funds raised to holders of the SPAC shares on a pro rata basis. In respect of delisting the SPAC, the exchange had initially proposed in the consultation paper that the exchange will only cancel the listing of the SPAC once the liquidation of the SPAC has been completed. However, based on market feedback, the exchange has agreed that on suspension of a SPAC securities, the delisting of the SPAC will take place before its liquidation. Well, I think that brings me more or less to the end today. Thank you once again for joining me. Bye.